mine might be the exception to neuroplasticity, or how do you pronounce that? Yeah, neuroplasticity. We, <laughs> we sent it out. Hopefully, got a chance to look at it. Uh, welcome back. Week, well, class number two, not exactly week two. We're off last week. Uh, our cultural moment. And so uh, we spent last week and this week uh, really looking at where our world is at and just trying to assess where things are and why people feel the way they do, why people believe the way they do. Um, and hopefully result of that is, is as, a, as a group we begin to grow in empathy for people that believe differently, that have different understandings, different convictions. And our conviction here is that the the more we understand where they're coming from and the more we understand why people believe the way they do, the more we're going to be able to effectively reach them. And so we've got to take some time and put some deep roots down in understanding where people are coming from. Um, could you pull the door, please? Thank you. Um, quick review of where we were at in week one. Common problems with, well, before I jump into that, let's pray. Start class and we can go from there. Uh, God, help us in our, our time together tonight. Uh, thank you for everyone who has uh, made the commitment to come out and to be here. Um, help me to speak with clarity and explain things in a, in a way that can be understood. I uh, pray for everyone to uh, be able to not only take the information and learn and comprehend it, but also see how it can be applied to reaching their friends and their neighbors and their families and their coworkers for Christ. I uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started off by saying that one of the common problems that we have in adult education kind of courses is that it tends to attract a certain kind of demographic um, of people that, that enjoy classroom, which is not a bad thing in and of itself, but it does have um, a ditch that it can fall into of we, we tend to stay in the classroom and not get out. And so um, I did put extra copies of the syllabus in the back. If you didn't grab one uh, last time, go ahead and grab one. This week, but as a reminder, the, um, the assignments there are built to kind of get it towards that, that stereotype and to push us out of the classroom, right? And so there's um, the writing assignment in particular. But they might get started on that already. You're, you're out of this. So oh, we're out of that? Sorry. I've got one. I just need to who need, does anybody still need one? Or we get Terry? You need one. I'll, uh, I'll run off some more copies <coughs> this week. Um, <coughs> did anybody get started on the writing assignment? Not yet. Okay, take a look. That's just some simple questions of beginning to understand how do I take what we're learning in this class and how do I put it into practice. Um, and if you put down some thoughts as we go through. Um, I think it'll make that assignment much more helpful instead of trying to remember back to what we were talking about two months ago when we first got started. Um, reading, I saw a couple of you bring in a copy of Who is Jesus? Who has gotten started on reading Who is Jesus so far? Excellent. Good. Glad to see that. As, as you'll get into that, um, if you haven't started already, you will be seeing some very introductory level. How do we talk about Jesus um, in ways that are not... Um, so deeply rooted in the language of Christianese that nobody outside the church understands them, right? So that's what we're looking for there. Uh, one thing I didn't say last time that I, I do want to note this time is in a class like this, when the, the last couple of weeks we talk about looking at some religious defeater arguments, some secular defeater arguments, and there's no chance we can cover the whole gamut of different reasons that people may not believe in just a couple of weeks, right? 
And so if there are different people that you've engaged with and they've brought up certain issues and you feel like you've struggled to formulate a response there, if you would just send me an email and say, hey, I've had some conversations with people, maybe some Mormons, about what exactly the Bible is and why we can trust it. Uh, when we get to that time, then I can formulate our class time and build that around the experiences that you've had, um, whatever those are. Just shoot me an email, um, and we're still kind of building the class out, um, and we want to do that as well as we can to serve you where you're at. Um, the problem we said last time was that we live in a polarizing age, right? We said that people get angry or they shut down, but they don't discuss, um, which is an old problem, actually, that we're selfish and we idolize our tribe, and it's easier to put other people down so that we look better, right? We said that this um, is something that all tribes do, political tribes, sports tribes, theological tribes, it, Virtually everyone does that with examples from each. And we talked about how technology makes it worse, right? In different ways that the, the algorithms that drive Facebook and Google searches and headlines being adapted on the fly based on basically what's the best clickbait um, only make this problem worse for us. We looked at possible responses. If you can be angry that somebody would misrepresent you in that way or that that talking head on CNN or Fox or whatever would, would say those things. We can respond in defensiveness and try and put the walls up and say, no, that's not me. Or we can look out, as Jesus did, with compassion and say, if that's the input that the great majority of the, our world is seeing, if that's how they're hearing about Christians, how difficult will it be for them to believe in this Jesus? And that's the response that we want to have, that response of compassion where we look out and we say, man, it is going to be really difficult for you to believe. Not one of righteous or unrighteous anger or selfishness or anything along those lines. One of the last things we talked about was different ways that we change our mind. Issues where we've changed our mind over a period of time. And what, we, what you guys said in our discussion groups was that when you change your mind, it's often a process. It's not an overnight kind of thing. That Sometimes it does happen quickly, but usually it takes a while. And so as we're trying to persuade people of who Jesus is and that he truly is the savior of the world, we need to bring that understanding to our discussion as well, that this is probably going to be a process for people. And so we need to play the long game and think through how do I meet them on their terms and build bridges, uh, build bridges of grace that can handle the weight of truth heard Pastor Vroga of our college parks. I love that. We need to build bridges of grace that can handle the weight of truth. And too often we just want to bring the truth in like a sledgehammer and bring it smashing down on that ninth grade wooden bridge we built that could hold 27 pounds and we wonder why it doesn't go well. Right? Bridges of grace that can handle the weight of truth. <clears throat> that was the problem. The solution we began to frame in and broad terms, and we started just by saying Jesus is the solution, is kind of a, a joke sort of way. Um, but then we actually got serious in explaining how the mission of the church we take from the very words of Jesus. Does anybody recall, what did we say is the mission of the church? Make disciples. Make disciples. Taken straight out of Jesus' last commission to us, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We talked about how that includes uh, discipling people to conversion, is baptizing them, and then also instructing them, and here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's how we live as Christians. 
we then said Jesus is also the solution, not only in the, meth, or, uh, the mission, but also in the method. Does anybody recall, what did we say was the, the method of Jesus that we should embrace? Starts with an I and N. Yes, there you go. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, incarnational ministry, or to, in, the, to imitate Jesus by incarnating. And there were five things we said about incarnating ourselves. Does anybody remember any of the five things we said about here's how we're going to incarnate ourselves? Enter the world. Enter their world. Great, you took good notes. Uh, what, open our home. Thanks, Jen. What else do we say? Enter their world. Don't wait for them to come to us. Open our home. Listen to learn. Listen to learn. As opposed to listening so I can already be preparing my next barb to come at and cut down their position. Right? That's the third one. What was the fourth we said? Define with clarity. Define with? Charity. 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 Sorry, I can't remember. You're close. <laughs> uh, the L's and the H's run together there. Uh, define with charity. Because it's really easy for us to take somebody else's position and then when we talk about it, twist it into a way that they would never own themselves. And that's simply not a way of life that builds trust. That's not a way we build bridges of grace that can handle the weight of truth. And then number five, what was the last one that we said? Play the long game. Play the long game. Recognize that it takes a while for us to change our mind, particularly on more significant things. And if this is the most of significant or the most significant of all conversations we could have, then it would be reasonable to expect that for a lot of people, they're gonna, it's going to take a while to change their mind as well. Now, we ran out of time. We had the three M's, the, the mission, the method, and then we were going to get to the message, and we didn't get to the message last time. And so that's where we pick up today. Um, and the message being, what is the gospel? Our mission is to make disciples using the method of Jesus, and you have to deliver the right message. Right, You could have the right mission and the right method, and if you've got the wrong message, the other things that you've done up to this point of entering their world and opening your home and listening to learn and defining with charity and playing the long game, it doesn't matter for anything. It just doesn't. Um, so let, let's do this. Let's start real quickly into a small group discussion, um, and I want you to be with just one other person. So just groups of two. Um, if you need to cross the aisle here, that's okay. Um, just groups of two. And then what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to say, you have 60 seconds to tell somebody who doesn't know Jesus, here's what you need to know to meet Jesus in eternity. You've only got 60 seconds. What are you going to say to them? So I'll give you just a second to get partnered up with somebody, groups of two only, and then I will give you uh, 60 seconds from there. Why don't you go with Jeff? Yeah, Jeff, Zach. All right, 60 seconds on your mark. Get set, go. What is the gospel? What does someone need to know to believe in Jesus? Thank you.
All right, that is 60 seconds. Now we'll give the other person an opportunity. Flip over, give somebody else a chance. Hand off to the partners, 60 seconds. What do you need to know and believe to be a Christian? What is the gospel is another way of asking that. 60 seconds, go. All right, and that right there is 60 seconds, so you can uh, come back to where you were initially seated and we can continue on. I hope that one thing you saw there is that you feel a little bit of friction of in some way say, yeah, I could boil it down really quick, but am I leaving something essential out? And then I try to expand it and it feels like, well, man, I'm emphasizing, like of my 60 seconds, I allocated my time terribly. I spent like 38 on the wrong thing. And, and it can be a little bit challenging. Um, one of the pieces that also comes into play there is we don't want to sound like we're a salesman in a used car sales lot and we've got our quick little bit and yet at the same time when we're talking about an entry-level conversation maybe it's while you're at the mailbox checking your mail and you're having a conversation with your neighbor on the sidewalk you don't have 90 minutes right and so we need to be able to say fairly concisely here's what I believe at its core and why it's so important and so I think there's a way to take the the short 60-second understanding and to misuse it but I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bath water without thinking through how do I concisely state the core of what I believe. Um, one of the other books on the recommended reading is What is the Gospel right here, also by Greg Gilbert. Very helpful if you think, man, that might be the one book that I want to read on the recommended reading by the end of 2019. Um, and just kind of help me get a, uh, I don't know what, the, what, the, what I'm looking for, is a refined understanding. I just want to be able to state this with clarity. Um, what I'm about to share comes out of this book. Um, he says we can define the gospel in four words. Um, that is God, man, Christ, response. And so it's just kind of a, a simple outline that's in your head um, that can kind of frame in the conversation. And then, um, so as you're thinking, it's just God, I start with God, I start with him as creator, I start with him as holy, I move to man and a man has chosen to rebel against God and go against his way. Uh, Christ then is the response, the solution to the problems that we've created. And in light of who God is and what man has done and how Christ has then acted on our behalf, what is the response that's required of me? 
it's kind of a nice little outline there that's not insanely robust, um, but kind of can frame in the discussion. Um, Gilbert does um, expand it a bit into a couple of questions that um, if you want to write them down, that's fine. I can post the, the PowerPoint online. I don't want to give you carpal tunnel as you write either. Um, but the questions we're trying to ask when we talk about God, who made us and to whom are we accountable? There's this massive truth that um, is difficult to state in a concise way there. Um, but as you say, hey, I believe there is a God who did create us. And because he did create us, we're ultimately responsible to him, we're accountable to him. Um, if people have got a, a difficulty with believing in God, all of a sudden you've opened up the opportunity for that conversation there. Then when you get to man, what is the question? What is our problem? Are we in trouble? Why? And so we start to describe how we are our own worst enemy, how we are the problem, how we've gotten ourselves into trouble. What's a problem? Are we in trouble? Why? And then when we talk about Christ, what is God's solution to that problem? Right now that presupposes that we couldn't produce the solution to our problem. We have to look to God's solution for the problem and then respond simply, how do I come to be included in that salvation? And so the message is simple. God, man, Christ response. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? Are we in trouble? How do we get in trouble? Why? What is God's solution to that problem? And what response is needed to God's solution? Response of repentance and faith. It's both and. Right? There's been um, some debates about is, is repentance needed, whether you look at what John MacArthur said with Lordship Salvation, some of those things. But you can't divorce repentance and faith as necessary to believing the gospel, right? That, that's what it means to be a Christian. Uh, now, when we, when we look at evangelism, when we look at the message that's being delivered, um, one of the things I think we need to at least take a second and linger on and talk about is the rub of uh, how do we make sense of you need to evangelize, you need to declare this message, and God is sovereign over salvation, Right? You could spend, you could have a whole seven week class, you could have a 14, 28 week class on that, right? But it's something that we need to at least talk about a little bit and say, how do we, how do we deal with that, um, that tension there, right? If God has ordained who is going to be saved, then why do evangelism? God has already saved them or chosen to save them. And the, the simple answer is we do what God has commanded us to do. <clears throat> Right? And there are ways in which my brain cannot comprehend the vastness of God and how he's completely in charge and how yet I still have responsibility to do things. And so we, we follow uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think is a helpful verse on this. Um, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children that, me, that we may walk in them forever. In other words, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The way God is completely in control of all things and prayer still changes things and God knew what was going to happen and the prayer still changed. You're like, I don't know how that works. I don't, but I still pray. And I'm okay with that, that tension being resolved in the mind of God and, and not being resolved in my own mind. And the same thing is true of evangelism. But the things that have been revealed 
You are to go and make disciples. You are to preach the gospel to all nations. Belong to us and to our children that we should walk in them forever. I think it's a helpful verse to look at there. Um, Acts 18, you jot down, I'm not going to put it up on the screen. Acts 18 verses 9 through 11 is a, a helpful passage as well. What happens in Acts 18 is Paul's getting ready to move on from a city. And um, God comes to him in a dream. She's getting ready to move on from the city. The persecution is pretty thick in that city. And the guy comes to him in a dream and says, Paul, don't go on yet. Don't leave the city because I have many people in this city that I have chosen that are going to get saved. You stay here and preach and I'll take care of you. And so while it's commonly said that the doctrine of election or reformed theology or Calvinism or whatever label you want to tag on there works against evangelism, we actually see in the scriptures where God himself says, because I have chosen, you stay and preach. So it's an interesting objection that we actually can find it refuted by the very words of God in Acts chapter 18 there. It's helpful. Um, but another way of looking at this, I think is helpful from A.A. A. Hodge. He was a professor at Princeton in the early 20th century. Um, and it's just kind of getting our mind around, there are certain tensions that I'm never going to understand completely. And so I'm just going to do what I know to be true right now. Look at what, what he says. He says, does God know the day you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? He says, quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for living. I think we can, we can say similar things about why we should pray and God is still sovereign over that and why we should evangelize and tell people the good news of who Jesus is and still understand that God is sovereign over that. Like, it's important to wrestle out our theology. It is. But it's easy, I'll say it again, in, in an adult education class for us to want to hunker down in these four walls and not get out and put into practice the things that have been revealed to us. Um, and so that, that's my take on that. If you do want more... Um, on that, J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, is an excellent short little resource. It is, uh, I don't know, 122 pages, not very long at all, um, but a helpful, helpful little book on this topic if you want to dive in and study a little bit more there. Um, we said at the beginning, the problem was the polarizing age. The solution was Jesus in the mission, in the method, and in the message just want to point out a couple other ways that here's why Jesus must be the solution. There cannot be any other solution. Um, number one, any other transforming effort is going to fall short. Right? The, the good news, we talk about the, the polarized, polarization of the world, we talk about that in a negative way. The good news on it is this. God is way stronger than any polarized culture we've ever seen. And so if our hope is in restoring the glory days of a Judeo-Christian culture, we're not going to see that in our lifetime and we should be depressed. But if our hope is in the God of the universe who can save religiously motivated terrorists like Saul, then we have great hope because even in a polarized age, that's nothing that holds a candle to his power. But any other transforming power is going to fall short. We don't have the ability to just turn around the world we live in at a moment's notice, right? 
um, the problems that we're dealing with, they're deeper than technology addiction. They're deeper than cable news. We're talking about human heart kind of problems. That's why Jesus must be the solution. And in Jesus is the only place we find that perfection of grace and truth coming together. Right? And we live in that sticky middle of the tension of trying to strive, like, hey, am I, am I being too hard on them? Or am I being an enabler? I don't want to be either. I want to be the perfect blend of grace and truth. That is Jesus. And that's what we strive towards. All right? So, so that's kind of picking up where we left off with the message and kind of concluding what I'd hoped to say last time. We can move into the cultural moment. But before I do that, we've said, and we're 30 minutes in here, we've said quite a bit, let me pause. Are there any questions that have come to mind in our first 30 minutes here before we kind of pivot and look at the next topic together? Yeah, Jen. Yeah, we've all got, um, we all have a tendency to fixate on things that probably aren't the main thing. That takes different expressions in, in Christian and in non-Christian conversations. Um, and when we get towards um, like week six and seven, I've got a couple of things that I've used to try and work through that conversation. Like, okay, I know that, that genealogy thing is like a big deal to you and I don't want to be dismissive of your problem, but I also want to kind of repurpose this conversation to go in a different direction. Yep. Don't you think one of the problems is the, back in the 60s when they taught relativity that there's no absolute, they've done a very, or Satan has done a very good job of turning our culture to that. Uh, you're talking about exclusivity of the gospel, but that's one of the toughest things, I think, in getting through yeah for sure um, it's you know, there's a reason they say that whoever controls the uh, curriculum in the elementary schools controls the culture all right well let's um, let's move on and so we come to class two our cultural moment um, and so one of the things I've I heard said in my education classes in college is <clears throat> how do you teach math well number one you know Johnny and number two you know math but if you don't know both Johnny and math you're gonna have a hard time teaching Johnny math right and so we spend a little bit more time on the front end of the class getting to know our culture Johnny will say um, and then continue also working in how do we how do we learn math as well and how to teach that. Um, if there was one overarching piece that I would say sums up our culture, I would say it's that we're distracted. And the two ways I kind of want to look at that is a digital culture and a secular culture. 
And I think that the digital and the secular come together to make us a very distracted people. Um, so when I say a digital culture, what I mean by that is it's a culture that resists reflection and meditation. It's the way that the digital world impacts us. Um, when I say secular culture, what I mean is that the supernatural feels less and less plausible. We'll explain each of those in a bit. Um, but I do want to suggest there's, there's this deeper impact that flows out of both the digital and the secular culture. And so we often talk about these, I think, in kind of superficial terms, where we have some cool data points, and we can show some graphs and that sort of thing. Um, but the implications are far more profound than just, I need to spend less time on my phone, or we have more atheists in our city. I think there's a lot more digging that we can do on this and learn to understand uh, where our, our culture is at. Now, Alan Noble came out with this fantastic book this year, Disruptive Witness. I highly recommend this. I, I know I recommend a lot of books. Um, this one has really shaped my thinking on the digital and on the secular age and what it means to um, kind of bear a disruptive witness. Um, I'll, I'll quote from him a couple of times and we'll talk about the book more as we go. Um, but just one quote that kind of opens things up and I think is, is helpful on this. Noble says the following, it's much easier to simply cast the seeds and hope for a harvest. But a good farmer knows that the ground needs cultivation. This is the work of witnessing in the 21st century, cultivating the ground. And so in a cultural soil that upholds Christian beliefs, this is maybe where we were 40, 50 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago. In that kind of cultural soil, casting the seed is what's needed. But in a cultural soil that disapproves of Christian beliefs, there's both a cultivation of the ground that's needed as well as casting the seed. And that's the challenging part. I think that's yet, uh, two weeks ago when we were together and I said, hey, what are you looking for in this class? Almost everybody gave some version of that statement there. I've, I've been taught about casting the seed. I've tried casting the seed, but it seems like the soil just isn't receptive. And how do I cultivate the soil along those lines? And I think one of the challenges that we'll have to work through here is if you just, I don't want to get too uh, like Eastern and personifying the soil here, but if you think about plowing the soil, it's not real pleasant to be the soil. <laughs> Right, It kind of flips everything upside down. And so what we're going to say is we need to plow the soil, and this is what Noble says, in bearing a disruptive witness, I need to disrupt the soil in a way that doesn't feel overbearing and off-putting and leave me alone. And so and you can kind of see the inherent tension, the difficulty there. Um, what do we mean by this kind of cultivation? What I, what I don't mean is that you've got this sick one line or just kind of a mic drop opportunity like what now here's where our culture is um i i don't mean that we're dropping a proverbial grenade on a facebook discussion right that's not that might blow up the soil but it's not cultivating the soil right um what i'm getting at is more of a slow steady cultivation of a reflective life and as we can slowly and steadily cultivate the reflective life ourselves, then we can also invite others into that same kind of life with us. 
Um, and I think that's, that's kind of the path that I want to set forward here. Um, we'll spend the rest of the class talking about it. Um, but a greater understanding of the problem and the challenges it poses, I think, is helpful in understanding how do we do this cultivation, right? So let's start with the digital world. It's a two-piece. I said a digital and a secular culture. Um, now, the digital, there's been a ton of data that's come out uh, about how much time people are spending on their smartphones and... You know, Apple, even on the newest um, version of iOS, now tells you every Sunday morning how much, what your screen time looked like this week. Some of you got that notification this morning. There's been a lot of, a lot of info that's come out about that. Um, and so let me just rattle off a couple of statistics. Maybe you haven't seen all of this. Um, teens today are 50% more likely to be depressed. I shouldn't say teens. Those who spend, I think it was more than three or four hours a day on their phone. Um, so you, you saw that notification this morning, you know where you're at. 50% uh, more likely to be depressed, 25% more likely to have suicidal thoughts. And in 2015, three years ago, which is a really long time when you realize the iPhone's only been out for 12 years now. So three years, and that's like 25% of the life cycle of the smartphone age. In 2015, more than 50% of smartphone users said they couldn't imagine life without their device. I mean, try, try and conceive of your life without it right now. Like, how did we do this for wouldn't thousands of years? <laughs> for some of us, it wouldn't change much. <laughs> um, interesting data that the, the Atlantic published on um, what the trends among our teens have looked like is you see a dramatic drop of 2007 the iPhones release of how much time people spend with their friends. So if you imagine in 07 it's released, it takes four or five years, so it's like 11 or 12 or so before it really starts to be in everybody's hands. You already have a bit of a downward decline and then it just plummets, right? Um, percentage of 12th graders who drive. You're staying in more. I'm on my phone. I don't need to go out and be with people because it's all on my device. Um, percentage of teenagers who ever go out on dates. Well, that's always been a problem. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and nice. Yeah, I have that problem too. Um, percentage of high school students who've ever had sex. You see even recently a pretty sharp dip right there. Because people, why would I go out and engage in the physical world when I've got everything I need in the digital world right here? You look at percentage of students more likely to feel lonely. Mm. Students less likely to get enough sleep. Right, so you just go on and on and on, and you see these systemic issues. Um, I don't want to spend forever talking on those data points, but just to, to kind of drive home the point, like, this, this, we're in a crisis. It's a major issue. Um, and a lot of times, the use of the time ends up being, like, the major talking point. And I think there's a, a far more profound problem that needs to be dealt with. Um, it has to do with the video that I sent out to you on neuroplasticity. Um, how many of us were able to take a look at that? A few. Okay. So neuroplasticity, neurobrain, plasticity, plastic. Your brain is plastic. It's very malleable. It can be changed. In essence, the, the neural connections in your brain are constantly being rewired. So the habits that we develop are forming us in far more profound ways than we've ever imagined at the very chemical level. Um, and so it gives brand new meaning. There's way more truth in Jesus' words in Matthew 6 when he says, 
where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you start investing in the right place and building habits in the right place, your heart will follow as well because your brain will be retrained to love those things. <coughs> Romans 12 talks about being renewed by the transformation of your mind. Right? There's, there's all kinds of, of depth that we need to look into here. Um, and so what this looks like, there's a, there's a positive way and a negative way that neuroplasticity can be played out. Right? And so what happens is the more I do a task, the more familiar my brain becomes with that task, and the less energy my brain has to exert to accomplish that task. So if you read a lot, you probably start reading faster after a period of time. And if you haven't read in like four years and you try and pick up a book, it's like, oh my gosh, it's just like a slodge. Like, I just can't get through this thing. Think about the first time you drove a car. Driver's ed instructor. It feels like there's a billion things going on out there and you don't know what to focus on at all. And the more you do it, then you can start to multitask. And I can talk on the phone and throw cheese its back to my daughter while texting with the... Uh, don't worry, you're right, I don't do that. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. There, there, there are positive ways where it can free up our brain to allow us to accomplish more. But there's also some very negative ways, right? And so one of the things that we've seen um, is that for students, uh, teenagers, who have grown up taking in large amounts of pornography on their devices, they're only able to respond to images on their phone. And they're actually with a man or a woman and there's no arousal because it's not a device. I've trained my brain to respond to a screen, not to a person. Um, there's a, a severe inability to focus that's being developed. Um, I'm a bit of an outlier on this one because I was late in getting a smartphone. I only got one about three, four years ago. Um, and so I went from always reading either a physical or on a laptop and what felt like a long article was dramatically different at that point than it is when I pick up on this and I start scrolling a little bit. Like, man, this is a long article. Like, I can't keep up with this flow of argumentation the guy's putting forward here. Even more significant than that, as soon as we kind of get, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, um, distracted is too general a term. We start to kind of lose interest in what we're doing. What does our, our phone teach us to do? Just swipe it away and it'll go away. And so when I'm faced with something that truly requires sustained thought, and I don't mean like a math problem, but like I'm not growing in holiness and I need to sit before the Lord and listen to Psalm 4610, be still and know that the Lord is God. That requires so much self-awareness and so much brain activity to engage on that that I've trained myself just to swipe away and go do something else. Now here we're having a semi-rational conversation about this, if you're not already too distracted and you've checked out and gone somewhere else. <laughs> but imagine this conversation for someone who's not had this conversation before and you're wondering why they seem disinterested in this God of the universe who created them and that the God that they're accountable to. Do you see how this... You, we're set up to not just be polarizing in the CNN sense of it, but polarizing in the sense like, I feel like we can't even come together for conversation at points. Mm -hmm. And nobody's really mad at each other. It just feels like, it just feels like the soil needs cultivated. 
right? Um, one of the things that, that happens to us is we lose the ability to feel empathy. Right now, and I didn't put it in the recommended reading, I don't think, but Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, has anyone read that? Published out in 1984, 5, 6, something like that. His premise was that the invention of television was going to kill society um, because it would teach us to seek continual amusement. And one of the ways he argued in that, that, that the, um, the digital age, the amusing age would kill our ability to feel empathy is when you look at the nightly news, when there's a murder, they explain that storyline in 47 seconds, and then just like that, you're onto the weather, and just like that, you're onto the Indianapolis Indians highlights. And it trains your brain to say they're all on a level playing field, as opposed to the friends of Job who came and saw his disastrous state and sat for an entire week without saying anything. Now, obviously, TV seems in some ways archaic compared to 5G LTE coming our way, right? But you can see how that trend destroys our ability to empathize with people. Um, one of the other things that's kind of disturbing is we don't even realize how much our phone is impacting us. There was this study at the University of Arkansas where there were three groups. And so the one group, um, all, all groups were at about an evil academic, evil, even, excuse me, an even academic uh, achievement level, roughly speaking. And the one group is allowed to um, take a test with their phone in their pocket the, other, the second group is allowed to take a test with their phone in their backpack, and the third group is allowed to take the test, and their phone must be in their locker. Now, when they walk out of the test, nobody thinks that their phone impacted them. But you have a very clear tier A of scoring, tier B of scoring, and tier C of scoring based on proximity to your phone. We don't even realize how it's impacting us, it is amazing. It's terrifying. Wow. Right? Um, and so, so our, our phones are pushing us towards perpetual distraction. And it's not just a state of being distracted when I'm actually on my phone. That's the crazy thing. But it's an actual chemical rewiring of our brains that prevents us from carrying on sustained thought. Right? It's actually something where we are incapable of existing in a state of non-distraction. Like, that's kind of scary to think about, right? Now, evangelistically, what is the challenge this presents to us? Well, there are many, but it's just a couple. One, spiritual formation requires sustained thought. Spiritual formation requires sustained thought. If you read any of the Puritans, you'll hear them talk about that over and over and over of know thyself. And that's John Calvin's famous thing. You just know thyself. Without knowing thyself, you can't know God. And that can be ripped all out of context by modern psychobabble to say some things that didn't mean. All Calvin meant by that is if you don't know how sinful you are, if you don't know thyself, you'll never know God. Spiritual formation requires the same thought, sustained thought. Two, distraction prevents us from realizing we aren't satisfied by this world. Distraction prevents us from realizing we're not satisfied by this world. And when we, we find that 
think it's Jeremiah 2 says that the, the sin of Israel is twofold. One, they have rejected God. They've, um, it says they've, uh, I forget the exact language, Jeremiah 2.13. It says they've rejected God and they've sought their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And he said, well, you're dissatisfied because your cisterns aren't holding any water. Well, because we're distracted, it prevents us from realizing that we have broken cisterns and unsatisfied lives because it's really easy. As soon as that troubling thought comes up, I just pull out the device and I can pull up cat videos. Right? And it, as Neil Postman said, it, we amuse ourselves to death. Um, third, distraction trains us, trains us to swipe troubling thoughts away. Just swipe it away in my brain, same way I swipe it away on the phone, and it trains me to respond in that way. Um, and then the fourth thing is this. The medium, and by medium I mean phone, device, whatever, is more formative than the message. So oftentimes accountability conversations are like, hey, how you doing on your phone, man? Are you looking at any porn? Well, you shouldn't do that. But far more formative than what you take in on the device is that you actually are using the device. And I think that's one of those like deeper implications that, that we miss um, and we need to pay attention to that. Okay, so in recognizing those four challenges, we also have to recognize the world isn't going to change. If anything, technology right now is moving at the slowest rate that it will in our lifetime. Think about that. It's never going to be advancing more slowly than it is right now. So if we're holding out hope for the glory days to throw back where we have landlines and TV monitors to the size of this room, it's not going to happen, right? So we have to think proactively about solutions. One way to start there, Andy Crouch, The TechWise Family. Uh, very, very challenging book very practical book. He's not going to spend a lot of time on the high-level data and the analytics of what, um, what the digital culture is doing to us, but very practical on how do I start to build healthy habits. Um, and so Crouch suggests things like this. Build your home and life around things that will reward skill and active engagement. In other words, build your home and build your life about, around being a creator instead of a consumer. So for us with little kids, just practically what this means is in our kitchen and dining room, it's kind of one room put together, we have an art table and this big toy kitchen. And so our kitchen is rarely clean, but we're trying to establish something where, hey, we're going to spend a lot of time here. Let's make it normal to have markers and crayons and colored pencils and toy meals out all over the place. So the normal thing is that I'm working with my hands and I'm creating things as opposed to just consuming. Um, other ways to, to implement that are look for ways to engage in gardening, in carpentry, and ways to do things with your hands where I'm, I'm more of a, consu or a, pr a producer than I, am a, than I am a consumer. Crouch also talks about uh, Sabbathing. So he says take an hour a day off from your phone, a day a week, a week a year. Which the first part sounds easy, and towards the end it sounds a lot harder, right? Um, but start to establish some of these rhythms. And so as I cultivate the soil of my own heart and my own life, I start to become the kind of person that I want to invite other people to become as well. That makes sense. It's easy for me to think about, like, oh, yes, I know somebody that's way more distracted than I am. Well, let's start with ourselves, and then let's invite people into 
this different kind of life and a, 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 a fuller vision of life that we're beginning to create. As a church, what does this mean? Those are kind of personal application points. As a church, what does this mean? Well, for one, we need to find ways to foster reflection. This is part of the reason that we have that silence at the end of the sermon every week. There's nowhere in our week where it's just quiet, you and God, and be with him. And we think that's really important. That's not something we plan on changing. That's part of the reason. It's, it's not probably the primary reason. It's part of the reason we're building a park. Let's create a place where people can go and engage and see God's beauty in nature and be out in that. Right? That's not going to change the entire world by having one little park in northwest Brownsburg. But it's one way that we can say, hey, we can work together to create a different kind of culture and some solutions for this town. Right? These are the kinds of things that, that we're working towards there, but it's a, it's a more in-depth understanding of the problem of the digital age. Um, questions do you guys have on that, that first kind of category of we're distracted through our, through our technology and through a digital age? Justin, I missed writing down point number four. Um, yes, the medium is more formative than the message. The medium, the, the, the way I'm taking it in, is more formative than what I'm actually taking in through that device. Um, there's been times even on that point where I've um, I found myself saying I need to not have my, I need to not follow along with it uh, in a sermon with the Bible on my phone. I need to not read the Bible on my phone. Um, I need to scripture memory. I've got an app for that. I need to not use that. I need to get a three by five card out. Because um, the message I'm taking in is really good, but the medium is more formative, and I, it, it kind of messes with me. Yeah. Other questions? Yes, Scott? Often, uh, I, I just, you know, we, we've got a church app now. We've got to be on our phones for the app, and we've taken worship of giving where people, we, you know, hey, use the app. You don't have to think about it anymore. Set it up as an automatic giving. You never have to think about it again. And, and I've, I've kind of thrown that out to different people. Where, where, where does that lead us in our worship? When we, we're not thinking about our giving anymore. Sure. You know, and we, I mean, we promote it that way. Use the app. You never have to think about your giving again. Yeah, I think there's, uh, I think there's merit in, in both schools of thought. Mm -hmm. Right? I know at the fall offering this year, one of the things that we, um, we took our girls up to the actual offering boxes just for them to have the opportunity to put their offerings in and bring them for that um, very reason of what you're saying. Yeah. How do we know that there's not more than just the phone, but the people behind what you're, you know, like the 20,000 engineers at Google that are spending their whole work life to influence you and me? You don't. 20,000 engineers getting paid $200,000 a year. That's huge. Sure. Yeah, it's big business. I'm thinking of a log, a logarithms, you know, that are being used and stuff that we're being exposed to. We don't know what, what's happening. It's scary. Other comments, questions? 
Chris. I don't know that this is an easy question or like an easy answer, but you know, I understand that spiritual formation requires sustained thought, and maybe you're going to get into all this. But again, you're, I understand you're setting up the culture, but then if you're dealing with, did I, I don't, I maybe I missed it. But if you're dealing with people who, who fall into all of these where we're distracted and we can't do sustained thought, and I'm not going to change their technology habits, and they're so. Are we getting into that part of like how do we address that from truly ha- that the one minute that why we did the one minute thing just to keep it short and sweet? Yeah, no, I'm, right. I'm trying to ask not very well, but I'm trying. To I know exactly that. what you're trying to ask because I, um, I, th- I think what you're saying is okay. It's great that we understand that about here's how the, our world is operating, and it's great that I can work on myself in this way, right. but I don't have the power to work on this kid that comes to the clinic every day in the same way. How do I get to him in that sense? Um, And so I guess the two thoughts that come to mind on how I plan to address it is one, I think there's a lot of value in in the individualistic age. We kind of move away from this, but there's a lot of value in seeing how as as a people, as a church people, how we can address that and how inviting people to church is not just coming to a weekly one-off kind of thing, um, but it's a, it's a unique kind of thing when the people of God come together. Um, and so corporately structuring our times together such that when I'm inviting someone, it's not just that there's a message you need to hear, but there's a way of being that you need to see, um, I think is significant. As far as how we engage that on an individual conversation level, uh, we'll spend a large chunk of the next two to three weeks trying to... Um, so when I say contextualization, you'll see that in the syllabus. Um, what we'll end up doing is saying, there are stories that our culture tells us, and we need to learn how to see those stories in the light of the gospel and, and tell people their own story from a, a lens of the gospel. So, for example, you got American Idol. What you get the underlying message of American Idol is: if, if you believe in yourself and you try hard enough, and you don't give up and you don't listen to all the critics, you can make it. And at the same time, you have the same message being sent: of yes, that's true, but most of you need Simon because you're not actually very good. And and so you've got both of those going together. And so how do we say, okay, this is a storyline that you can quickly relate to what's going on underneath there. Um, and so we use a, a threefold approach we call um, resonate, dismantle, gospel. And so the, the underlying cry of the soul there, where they, they're dissatisfied, they don't even recognize they're dissatisfied because they're distracted, I can resonate with that, uh, that cry of the soul in a really powerful way. And I think as I resonate with someone in that way, there's a, a hearing that's gained of like, wait, you actually do feel empathy. You actually have thought about this. You actually do what it, you do understand what it means to be in my shoes here. And then I can say, yeah, but this is where that, that narrative leads to and here's how it's going to fall short. And you could pursue it all the way, but it's not going to get you what you want. But let me tell you how the gospel enters in and rewrites that story and it speaks to the same cry of the human heart. That's, that's kind of where we'll um, try and take that the next couple of weeks. That's something for you to be thinking about. 
um, as we come up on next week and the following week is what are the stories that our culture tells us and how can you resonate with the cry of the soul, dismantle it and show where it comes up short and show how the gospel retells that story because we're going to spend some time in class just trying to kind of brainstorm on what are some common ones here. The beautiful thing is if, if you can come up with a few examples, you don't necessarily need like a brand new one with every single conversation. But if you've got a couple of really good ones, it's almost like a, uh, like a guest lecture. If you've got three or four good lectures, you'll be employed for a long time. Right? You don't have to have a fresh one every single week. Um, and that can be helpful in, I think, speaking into individual lives as well. So with the corporate and the personal. Yeah. But it's hard. I, I wrestle with that one a lot. Any other questions? How, did you de- how do you define sustained thought? Or is that what you just explained in the last five minutes and I wasn't understanding? <laughs> <laughs> how do I define sustained thought? Uh, I'm just going to swipe on that. I, well, because Christy mentioned it also, so I was trying to... Yeah, I don't know that I have a, a... Actually sustaining the thought towards the gospel or towards God. Right, I, I would say the most... Because the, the counter that somebody could say is, well, what do you mean I can't have ongoing sustain, sustained thought? Let me tell you about all the um, difficult equations I had to solve at work this week. Right, and they say all the, the, the things they've done. And there are ways in which sustain, sustained thought is still maintained at a very high level. Um, I think off the bat, what I said on a digital culture is it resists reflection and meditation. I think that's the kind of distraction and sustained thought, a sustained reflection, a sustained meditation, where if you were to say um, to, your, yeah, to yourself or to somebody else, hey, I want you to go take 15 minutes and sit in silence and think about nothing. That feels absolutely impossible. If it doesn't feel impossible, just go try it tonight, and you'll find out. Get old. <laughs> um, it's easy. Well, I started doing. That. I'm, I'm struggling on it, Steve. I, I'm glad it's easy for you, brother. I need to... It used to be, but it is now. The adult, what's hard is trying to think of something. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So I think that's how I would reflection and meditation would be the the pieces that are most lacking. Right. Both okay. within the church and without. It's not okay. a. I just. That's what it seemed like, but I yep. want to make sure it's some deeper. Sure. Um, All right, well, let's move ahead. And we talked about a, a digital aspect of our culture that leads to distraction, but also the second part was the secular aspect of our culture that leads to distraction. And so when I say secular, what I mean is not that there is more atheism in the world. That's not what I mean. Okay, What I mean is that not believing in God is seen as a live option. Okay, That would not have been true four or five hundred years ago. Can you say that one more time? So by secularism, what I mean is not that there are more persons who affirm atheism. What I mean is, as a culture at large, you look out and it, it's a, it is a live option to not believe in God. Oh, sure. That's, that's okay. As opposed to saying, hey, they're closely related, but there is a difference. I think it, it, you'll see why that's important. What that means then is if not believing in God is a live option, 
then meaning for my life to the world at large becomes something that's defined internally. If believing in God is the only live option, then where's the only place meaning can come from? From God, the external source. But once you step into believing, not believing in God is a live option, then that's fine. Zach may choose to derive meaning from his relationship with God. And no one's knocking that. You're perfectly free to do that. But Emily is just as able to find meaning in some other place. And each person gets to define, here's where I find meaning. Okay? Um, what this, the next step of this is that beliefs appear to guide our identity expression and how we see the good life. There's a lot there. Let me explain what I mean by that. Our beliefs appear to be nothing more than me expressing my identity on the basis of, I think this is the good life, or I find meaning here. So, give me an example. See the guy who is at the gym two hours a day, he's absolutely ripped, and he dresses really well. You got that in your mind's eye, okay? His his whole thing is driven by the good life is probably that I look really great and I'm desired by attractive women. Probably unstated at any point, but that's what's driving. And then what you'll see him post on Facebook is articles about the health benefits of nutrition and weight training. Now, the belief that nutrition is important and weight training is important did not drive his life the quote-unquote beliefs that he has are a mere version of expressing his identity, which was built on what he conceived of as the good life. You can start to track with that. Let me give you another one. Um, there's the, the conception of the conservative Christian who can oftentimes see the good life as being morally upright. Or, uh, people see me as morally upright individual. Right? And so, as a Bible college student, you could see this all the time when you go to uh, wherever people were employed, you know, the, the, the grocery store or something, right? And so, the, the Bible college student is the guy with, um, he's, he's got his hair sharply done, his shirt is tucked in, he's trying to, you know, literally dot his I's and cross his T's at every level. The things he posts on Facebook are about moral causes, now, he may actually, to the outside, what it looks like, again, is the beliefs that you say you have about whether it be racism or the wall or abortion or whatever it may be, are just a way of you expressing your identity as the morally upright person. And that's where you think the good life is found, is if I'm better than you, morally. Now, what's interesting here is it actually doesn't matter in some senses whether that perception is right or wrong. That may not, the, the guy who works out all the time, he may actually have read, you know, 100 research articles about the benefit of nutrition and weight training and said, well, that's how I'm going to live my life. He may have done that, but to the world, it doesn't look that way. It looks like, oh, it's just identity expression. You may have actually come to Christianity because you believe it's actually what's true about the world. And you believe that these, 
babies that are being murdered in New York and all around our nation, it actually matters and it's evil and it's wickedness. But that's not what it looks like to the world. So I'm, I'm not actually arguing against you posting those things on Facebook. I'm just saying you have to understand what these things, what the perception is and what that looks like, right? Um, and so one of, the, one of the ways we talk about this, Alan Noble says in his book, he says, the challenge facing us today is not so much the temptation to be relevant to the point that we lose the gospel, but the tendency to unknowingly accept a secular understanding of our faith while believing that we're boldly proclaiming the gospel. And here's what he means by that. The challenge facing us is not so much the temptation to be relevant to the point that we lose the gospel. It's not that I'm like scared to post a Bible verse because I want to be relevant. It's not that I'm scared to post something like, look how wicked this bill is passed in such and such state. Because I want to be relevant. It's that, hey, I'm going to boldly proclaim the gospel and I'm going to get a Christian t-shirt. And I'm going to wear it to whatever this event is, or I'm going to have this bumper sticker, and it looks like to the world that we're equating my, you know, Jesus's life t-shirt with the next guy's IU Hoosiers t-shirt, and they're on a similar playing field. Again, it's not to say that a Christian t-shirt is a, a wrong thing that you shouldn't have. It's just understanding that it looks like, oh, you happen to be a fan of Jesus. He happens to be a fan of Hamilton on Broadway. And that's the way things begin to get perceived um, by our culture. It's when we say things like this, I, I, I was talking to uh, one of our students at Purdue who was trying to witness to, uh, I think, a, a Buddhist friend. And she said, oh, I know Christianity is true. I don't know where I'd be without Jesus. Well, I don't know where you'd be without Jesus either, but that's not a good reason to believe in Christianity. Because somebody could just as easily say, I don't know where I'd be without my dog. I don't know where I'd be without my wife. I don't know where I'd be without this job. It just feels like, oh, you happen to find meaning in Jesus. That's great for you. I happen to find meaning in my job. Do you see what I'm saying by that? Um, You're saying it's selfish? It's self-centered? Yes. It, 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 now, whether it is or isn't is a bit beside the point, again. It's that it appears to be I've chosen to find meaning here and that's good for me but I've lost, in a secular world I've lost the ultimate external oh, reference point of God, that it's, it's all in hey, if you feel better about yourself going to church, man, go to church I tried that, it didn't work for me that's okay I, I worship at Lucas Oil Stadium now <laughs> you know, and, and so that kind of thing where it just whatever our, when we state our beliefs, it sounds to people like in a statement of identity expression. Like, I'm a Colts fan, I'm a Reds fan. I'm a Christian, I'm a... Dot, dot, dot. Um, the word that Noble uses, and it's a little bit more technical, is everything feels imminent. It's here in front of us, and imminent as opposed to transcendent. There's a transcendent God that transcends the universe... There's, so you call that the transcendent frame versus the imminent frame. Here's what's in front of us. Everything appears that you, everything that is appears to be right in front of us. There's nothing beyond that. And so, um, I don't have my Bible right on me here. Let me pull up um, one second. Sorry for the delay here. 
Second Peter 3, 4. Second Peter 3, 4, I want to read, and I, I didn't have it in my notes. Um, actually, I'll start in the beginning of chapter 3. This is fascinating what Peter says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Here, uh, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. We're seeing that. But verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Things just seem to keep going on and on. Where is this transcendent God? The imminent frame appears to be all that there is. I can just see what's happening in front of me. Where's the promise of his coming? Verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He goes on and talks more and more about, ultimately, where does Peter take that argument back to? There's going to be scoffers, and people say things are just continuing like they always have been. There's no external reference point. Take them back to God, man, Christ, response, who made us and to whom are we accountable. And that's where that, that conversation begins to turn. And that's where you start to establish the grounds on which we can actually have a fruitful conversation. That's how I cultivate the soil there. Second um, Peter 3 is really helpful in that regard. Um, okay. The question then becoming, and I started to get to it, how do we disrupt the imminent frame? How do I begin to see that what I see in front of me is not all that there is? And this is one that is a little bit trickier, I think, even than the, the digital age. Um, I want you to, uh, I don't want to be morbid on this, but when you think about someone who has passed on from this life, when you're at the funeral, when you're with the family, when you're at the graveside, it's almost like that person screams at you from their death that there must be something beyond death. You've ever felt that? There's an imminent frame right there in that sort of tragedy that's being disrupted. And in some ways, when we ask the question, how do I disrupt the imminent frame, that everything that is right in front of me is all there is, how do I disrupt that? In some ways, we're at the mercy of circumstances in life coming about that kind of shake people up and jolt them. And so what I said previously about building these kind of rhythms in life and inviting people into those rhythms is creating a, a backdrop, creating a, um, a garden that they know about. I know there's a garden over there somewhere. And when things get, when I start to be shaken out of my imminent frame, I know where to find that garden. It's over at Rob's house. And it, it's playing the long game. It is. But it's saying, this is a, it's a difficult soil. How do I disrupt it? How do I cultivate it in a way that's not taking a sledgehammer to it and throwing a grenade on the Facebook post? 
right? Evangelistic challenges. I think there's, there's four here that we can... Have I already talked about those? I, I have already talked about these, but if you want to write them down, that's fine. We'll walk through them. First one I wrote down is beliefs become more identity expression than truth correlation. So when the beliefs I have and when I state them, it looks like I'm trying to tell you, here's who I am, as opposed to this is what I believe is actually true. And so if you've ever had to try, if you've ever tried to have a debate online with somebody and present like your, your rational evidential case for the Christian faith and it just feels like you're going nowhere, that kind of explains why. Um, this also is why some of the objections to Christianity um, are a little bit more existentially based. For example, um, I just see all the bad in the world that's come from religion. Well, that actually doesn't say whether it's true or not. It just says, I'm the kind of person that wants to be against suffering. And if religion causes suffering, then I'm not going to identify with that. So religion is not a, um, I'm not going to embrace that because the way I identify is not with suffering and religion causes suffering and you don't actually get to the truth piece of it. If that makes sense. I don't want to, I know that, that circle's like kind of hard to follow without whiteboarding it up. Um, yeah, beliefs become more identity expression than truth correlation. Again, that's not, I'm not saying that any of you believe wrongly in that way. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but that's what it appears to be which makes the conversation difficult. Um, and then the, the, the second piece cl follows closely from that. Beliefs become how I articulate my identity. So whenever you say something, it looks like you're articulating your identity. The third thing is this establishes a closed frame. A closed frame, I mean, what you see in front of you, it's a, the world out there is a closed box. There's nothing outside of it. And so the explanations have to come from within it. You know, materialism is another term you can toss in there. I try and kind of avoid too many isms or we all get lost. Um, and then lastly, when I present a defense of the gospel, it just sounds like, again, identity expression as opposed to, I actually believe this is true. And in some ways, we got to check ourselves here because we're part of the problem when we say things like, like I said before, I don't know where I'd be without Jesus. Maybe a true statement, maybe a good statement, maybe Helpful in some context. Evangelistically, it's, it's very unhelpful, I believe. Um, let me pop over to this, this next quote from, from Alan Noble. It's helpful in kind of wrapping things up a bit here. He says, both secularism and distraction have the effect of scrambling us, inclining us towards frail, fragmented, and incoherent beliefs and making it difficult for us to communicate the full weight and exclusiveness of the gospel. In other words, in my mind, I'm taught when a, a difficult thought comes about, I just swipe it away. What that means is I may have a contradiction in my beliefs, and I never work through my beliefs sufficiently enough to actually recognize that. So it, it scrambles my brain such that I have frail, fragmented, and incoherent beliefs. I may hold them with fervor. It may be, I've got gusto behind it, but that doesn't mean that it's not frail, fragmented, or incoherent. 
And as a result, then, it's hard for us to communicate the full weight, the full implications of the gospel, and why this can be the only way. It's like, why, why can't, if it's a salad, why can't I have some, just some cheese on the side as well? Like, no, 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 I'm not asking you to put cheese on top as well. I'm asking you to go to a completely different restaurant because it's the only restaurant where you're going to get fed. And that's a difficult, um, difficult thing to be said there. Um, solutions. What are some solutions we have here towards the secular frame? Um, again, I'll start corporately because, I, like I said, when, when Christy was asking earlier, I think the corporate aspect of what we do here is, is very underplayed, and we need to put more weight into that as well as the personal aspect. Um, so corporately, as a church, we want to use liturgies that connect us to the transcendent. It's part like the, the call and response at the beginning of the service. I understand that, that kind of sucks the life out of the room sometimes. Like you had music going and conversation going, and then all of a sudden it's like plop. Like it can feel kind of clunky. But we're trying to establish a liturgy that reorients us towards something transcendent that goes beyond us. That's one way we can work against that. Um, personally, when we are facing any kind of difficult circumstance, whatever it may be, run the whole gamut, I think it's powerful for us to say out loud to ourselves and to others things like, this isn't what I want, but I know God is God and I'm not, so I can trust him. As opposed to, you could say, I know everything happens for a reason. Now, does everything happen for a reason? Sure, it absolutely does. It's a completely true statement. But I have to understand where my culture is at and recognize what I mean by that is totally different than what somebody else is going to hear when I say that. You're trying to appeal to, I know God is using this for good, even though others meant it for evil. And he works all things for good to those who love him. Um, but when I say more explicitly, this isn't what I want but I know I'm not God, and he is God, and he's good, and he loves me, so I can trust him, then I'm establishing there is an external frame beyond this world. There is something transcendent that does determine meaning and does set the rules. Um, I think one way we can speak into this a little bit, uh, has anybody seen the movie Bruce Almighty? Um, concept is Jim Carrey becomes God for a day. And at first it's like, oh, that's awesome. And he has all these ridiculous things he can do. He can start walking on water and he can, um, I won't go into all the details of all that, but it's basically genie in a bottle kind of thing. And at the end of, the, it feels very sacrilegious. Perhaps it is. Um, but at the end of the movie, he comes to the realization, he says, you know what? Being God is way more complicated than I could ever do. And I don't want that job. I can't handle all that. There's way too much going on in the world that I could ever see. And so there, there's one kind of story that our culture tells where I think we can kind of latch on to that and say, look, once you actually see this transcendent, something that's way beyond, you know that what the resources we have in this world are not sufficient to deal with the problems we have in this world. You've got to appeal to something beyond. Um, so that, that's one kind of like simple on, on a personal level. Um, but more important than all of those, I think I would come back to the five things we said last week. 
from incarnational ministry of as I cultivate within myself a clear understanding of I'm going to have a, a reflective life, a meditative life. I'm going to think through my beliefs and work through them deeply. I'm going to work to put my phone away. It begins to create a different kind of environment in your home and in your life such that when you enter someone else's world, you've already cultivated in yourself the ability to feel empathy, and without you recognizing it, they're going to recognize there's something different about this person. And when you open your home and you invite them in, they're going to see a very different kind of home where it is a disruptive witness. Where when you listen to learn and define their position with charity, say, hey, I heard you say this, and um, honestly, it's a different perspective than I have, it sounded like you said this. Is this what you said? You state it in different terms, and they see that you're actually listening to learn and trying to define with charity. That's a very rare thing. And that starts to, to cultivate that soil and bear a disruptive witness. And then when you play the long game, number five, that it's not just, hey, how long can I take before I hit you over the head with a two by four of, you know, turn or burn? It just creates a totally different kind of environment. Is any of it particularly easy? No, I don't mean to suggest that. But it's trying to say, hey, what's the cultural soil in which God has chosen to place us? And how do we be fruitful and faithful in the time he has given us? Right? Questions on the, the secular concept of our culture and where we're at there. Hi, Jen. I thought it was a good point to be clear when you're um, using the literary text because everything happens for a reason and totally means something different to everyone. But by being clear that it is about God and his time, not our time, our reasons, that's a good point. Good thing to remember. Other comments or questions? I'll close with, I was reading this last week a copy of uh, Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, we're going to go through that um, as pastors and deacons. Um, and she was telling, she's just retelling her story um, and some of the ways that she had reached out to neighbors that um, she, she had a guy move in that was, um, his life was a mess. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and the rest of the neighborhood had kind of stiff-armed and rejected this guy. Um, and then one day, the, um, the police came, they arrest him, they carry him off, and you know, it's yellow tape all the way around the house, and it's kind of this crisis moment in the cul-de-sac. Like, ah, we're all out on the sidewalk, what do we do? And Rosario said they'd all just kind of learned that our house was just kind of the place to come in, and so we had a big pot of... Uh, what they had for breakfast. It was some kind of a, a soup or a stew or something. It was really, said, hey, just come on in and we'll just brew a bunch of coffee and uh, we just sit around the table and spend this time together as a, um, as a neighborhood, as friends, as families. Um, and it just kind of, it was a striking thing for me to read as we're coming into talking about this. What does this look like? Um, it's a pretty easy read. I would encourage you to check that out and just see a lot of what we're saying, like, I see you're all tracking with me, like, okay, I see what you're saying, Justin, in the abstract, it makes sense, but how do I actually do this at 7.30 on a Monday night when it's really cold out and gets dark an hour before that? 
Like that's kind of tricky. How do I do that? Um, I think Rosario is really helpful in that regard. Um, so if, if you're still wondering like what book do I check out, um, that may be a good one to go to as far as just putting some, some meat on the bones and getting specific there. And just real quick, because I did get that one because I read her other book, and, which is phenomenal as well. Um, just to, again, another good point or whatever, she mentioned how, you know, did her typical reach out to him and he stiffed army as kind of a recluse, recluse whatever. Um, it took about a year of just gentle, you know, they kind of reach out or say hi or whatever, but it took about a year before um, he had a crisis of losing his dog and that opened that doorway to help him find the dog, which then led to him coming into their home and having dinners with them. And it just, I think so often I know for myself, it's like you want to be able to say the one thing and then have, and we're all about instant gratification. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to reach out to my neighbor, have this great conversation and have it be all different after just one. And I mean, just just hearing her, that it was just, it's just, and it's a part of her natural rhythm that that's just, yeah, and I think one of the things I've heard her say too is that she's on uh, is it Safe Families, Safe, safe Town. Safe Families is where you welcome people. Like, That's not. There's some neighborhood app they have. Whenever they find out anything's gone wrong, um, and she said she's taken meals to random people in her neighborhood like four times a week. And it's just constant. It's like, where is there need? Where is need? I'm gonna go be there. Like, I, I get that doesn't work for everybody. Like, it's gonna look different in different people's rhythms. So I'm not trying to say you need to be Rosaria in that way, um, but it does challenge my paradigm to hear her paradigm, if I can say it that way. Um, yeah. So classes one and two are largely about identifying the soil, the cultural soil in which we're in, some of the problems, and start to hint at some solutions. When we come back, not next week, so we have the Super Bowl next week, which is a great opportunity to open your homes. Please do that and invite people in. Um, but we come back on February the 10th. That's where we get a lot more explicit on how do we shape some of these conversations. And we'll start with retelling the stories that our, our, uh, our culture already embraces. You said uh, resonate, dismantle, gospel, use that approach. Um, and then the, the back end of the class is where we'll start to get to then some of these specific objections to faith that people have. Kind of the, the, again, the flow of thought is we've understood where we're at. We've started to build some inroads. People have started to see a difference. We're starting to have meaningful conversation. Within the meaningful conversation, you're going to find some difficult questions. How do we answer those? And then we'll end week seven with somebody says, oh, all right, fine. You've listened to me all this time about why I believe what I do. What do you believe? Why do you do it? Um, week seven is how do I build a case for Christianity from the ground up once I've got a little bit of time to do so. Um, so that's where we're going. Like I said at the outset today, if there are particular questions that you have wrestled with yourself or you've had people that you've um, discussed with and they've brought them up, you've had a hard time answering them, send me an email with those um, and I'll be sure to address them in class. Um, that way the, the time here can be as, as useful and as helpful as possible for you. Um, let me pray and we will be dismissed. God, thanks for class tonight, opportunity to look at the world that you've created and the place where you've placed us. Help us to be faithful in testifying uh, of who you are with the days that you give us. Help us to become all things to all men that by all means we might see you save some. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.